I don't know about for you, but for my, to my contemporary ears, the story of Hannah, Elkanah, Samuel, and Eli can feel far-fetched. I don't know if you feel that way. It's hard to, for me to imagine parents giving their young child into the care of a priest. And perhaps it's even harder to imagine a high priest who would willingly accept the responsibility of raising a young child who was not his own. In the culture of Western Europe and America over the last several hundred years, this story has strained credulity for a great many Christian readers. And so many interpreters have found it easier to categorize the tale as having this kernel of truth mostly wrapped in myth to tell the story of how Samuel came to be prominent in Israel. But that's probably somewhat naive. As we've been reminding ourselves throughout this series, these events, of course, did not take place in our culture, nor did they take place in the culture of our European ancestors. We've often changed things, like uh, the story of Jesus. We now say he was in a stable. But that's, of course, well, maybe not of course. It's not what the scriptures say. He was probably sleeping with the animals in somebody's house. And there were no inns in Bethlehem. So he was not kept out of the inn. But we updated it. We made it European. Of course we did. We're Europeans. That's the way we wanted to see it. But these individuals lived between 1075 and 1050 BC. So they lived somewhere around 3,070 years ago. They lived in what today is called the ancient Near East, and they lived in a time in which infant mortality was exceedingly high, almost astronomically high. I don't even think we can comprehend how perilous the lives of children were. According to ourworldindata.org, uh, it says this, many researchers have independently studied mortality rates for children in the past. In different societies, locations, and historical periods, the average across a large number of historical studies suggests that in the past, around one quarter of infants died in their first year of life, and around half of all children died before they reached the age of puberty. It was a practice in some parts of the ancient Near East not to even name children until they reached the age of five, because they were unlikely to survive that long. Even more, the Bible tells us that child sacrifice was common in the religious practices of this part of the world, especially the sacrificing of firstborn males. Again, hard for us to imagine. We might remember that God tested Abraham by requiring him to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. Now, God, of course, intervened before Abraham could carry that out, but Abraham's willingness to do that tells us a great deal about the religious culture of his time. Throughout Israel's history, God accused the Israelites of themselves also participating in this practice. In Jeremiah 19, verse 5, for instance, God condemned the Israelites for participating in infant sacrifice as part of their worship of Baal. And Baal was routinely worshipped during the age of the judges, in which Hannah lived. And finally, Hannah lived during the period, as I just said, of the judges in ancient Israel. And one of those judges was a man named Jephthah. Maybe some of you are familiar with his story. The scriptures tell us that Jephthah made a vow to God that if God were to give him victory over his enemies, that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out to greet him when he arrived home at his house. And the first thing that came out to greet him when he arrived home was his only daughter. Now, readers of Judges, if you read commentaries, they, boy, do they try to get around what happened next. People have tried to invent all kinds of interpretive options for what Jephthah did in response to this. But the plainest reading 
of the scriptures is that he proceeded to sacrifice his daughter in fulfillment of the vow. And that was expressly forbid by the covenant of Sinai. God commanded the Israelites never to do that. But the breaking of vows was also forbidden. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where two values that you hold compete with each other and you have to decide which one you're going to obey because you can't possibly obey both. That was the situation of Jephthah. So the one he chose as more important tells us about his culture, right? We know which one we would have chosen. We would have broken the vow seven days a week and saved our child, but he did not live when we lived. He seems to have chosen to keep the vow and violate the law against child sacrifice, believing somehow that the breaking of vows was a worse sin than the killing of children. Now, I say all of that simply to help us understand the water in which Hannah is swimming and in which Eli is swimming. It helps us to understand that they lived in a time in which first infant mortality was extremely high. So the loss of a child, though that is tragic every time, was also sadly very, very common. They lived in a time in which the sacrifice of a firstborn son to a god was commonplace. Everybody in the culture was doing that. And they lived in a time in which the keeping of vows was considered a sacrosanct. Now that doesn't justify Hannah's or Eli's decision in our eyes, but it should explain why their decisions made sense to them. As hard as these events may be for us to imagine, the historical evidence suggests that they would have been reasonable and maybe even considered honorable in their culture at the time. The text of 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 19 to 28 tells us that the Lord showed compassion to Hannah and either allowed her or enabled her to conceive a child. Hannah named that child Samuel. And the book we're studying is named after him. He becomes a significant figure. And there's debate over what his name means. Nobody seems to be able to agree. I read, I think, two different commentaries that provided four different options for what his name means. But I'm convinced that it's composed of the Hebrew words Shema and El. Uh, So I take his name to mean something like the hearing of God. The text then tells us that Hannah kept the child with her until he was weaned. Well, how long was that? Well, don't read it like an American. They suckled their children a very long time. So that we're not sure, but the extant historical evidence suggests that Samuel would have been weaned when he was about three or four years old. So again, scholars debate this, but the plainest reading of the text is that Eli took Samuel into his house to be trained as a perpetual servant of God um, in the Lord's tabernacle when he was about three years old. Why did Eli agree to take responsibility for a three-year-old child? That could not have been easy. His sons were grown. He was an old man. As the text of 1 Samuel reveals, This was a time in which the people of Israel were quite selective in what they obeyed from the covenant of Sinai, and they didn't. So you could hardly argue that they they did it because the law said to do it. Well, that hardly seems to have motivated Eli and his sons most of the time. The story of Jephthah, though, reveals that the importance of vows seems to have been highly revered in this time. Moses commanded the Israelites in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 to 2, as follows. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to put himself under a binding obligation, he shall not break his word. He shall act in accordance with everything that comes out of his mouth. 
It's a strange culture. If a woman made the vow, her husband had to affirm the vow or else it didn't count. But we saw in the text, right, that Elkanah did confirm her vow. He said, may it be as the Lord has said. So everything is covered. Now, Eli had witnessed Hannah's prayer several years earlier. And Eli himself had voiced, remember last week, the words of blessing uh, that made Hannah believe that it was Eli who granted her request in some ways. So in his culture, he probably had little choice but to accept the responsibility now to raise the child since this was a vow she had made and something that he had blessed. Given all of the sins that 1 Samuel will describe as being committed in Israel at the time, it, again, it may seem strange that this particular law would have been so carefully followed. Why this one and not the others? But again, every generation has its virtues that it values higher than others. You probably have them in your life too. There are many sins that we overlook that don't seem a big deal to us and other things that are so unforgivable that if we see them, we go on Twitter and we destroy lives, right? That, that's, everybody has their cardinal virtues. Apparently at this time, the breaking of vows was considered something like an unforgivable sin. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us. Since the keeping of one's word is the very definition of the word love in the Bible, chesed, doing what you said, being steadfast in what you claimed. So Hannah fulfilled her vow and Eli complied by taking responsibility for Samuel. So that's the story. But today I want to consider what follows this story, which is Hannah's response in prayer. And I want to think about that more carefully. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And for those who remember the prayer of Mary, Jesus' mother, which is called the Magnificat, if you know the language, that's been preserved for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, you should find some of Hannah's prayer very familiar. This is what the text says. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do not go on boasting so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken to pieces, but those who have stumbled strap on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to be hungry. Even the infertile woman gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. The Lord puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and brings up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He humbles, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to set them with nobles. And he gives them a seat of honor as an inheritance. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he set the world on them. He watches over the feet of his godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a person prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be terrified. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed. That word is his Messiah in, in Hebrew. Mashiach. Hannah had learned something about God through her experience. And in her prayer she attempted to thank God for what she had learned about him. And this may be, 
I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but one of the most important sermons that I have ever preached because it's an attempt to explain what Hannah realized about God because it's a theme that runs through the scriptures and I'm not sure I really have the capacity to explain it well. I'll do my best, but may God be the one who reveals himself to you and not me. Perhaps it's not surprising that the themes of Hannah's prayer are compassion, pride, and reversal. Compassion, pride, and reversal. In many ways, Hannah was thanking God for what Christians theologians, Christian theologians usually call God's providence. But Hannah has understood God's providence in some deeply biblical ways. She is the best theologian we will find in Samuel and Kings. I would summarize her theology in this prayer as follows. This is my summary. God is the only certain foundation on which life and hope can be placed. Many who succeed in this life or find prosperity in it, they credit themselves with their success. They think it's a product of their own hard work, their own intelligence, their own sweat. And this is a perilous type of pride because it takes the glory of God and it applies it to human efforts. To demonstrate the feebleness of human strength and effort, therefore, God often engages in providential acts of reversal. He allows superior warriors to be defeated while he enables weaker opponents to triumph over them. God makes the wealthy poor and the poor wealthy. And God makes the infertile woman bear children while the woman with many children experiences fatigue and depression. So that's the theme of her prayer. Now Hannah has picked up through her experience with God, on a theme that is actually very consistent in the scriptures, and it's most fully expressed in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. So I hope you'll indulge me while I illustrate that claim. I am a pastor that likes to show his work. I could always tell you just what you're supposed to think, but I would rather show you how I came to those conclusions so you can evaluate whether it's good reasoning or not. And that's what I want to do. For instance, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 reminds us, Though he, God, scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the needy. That word for scoffer has been translated many different ways. We're going to see shortly in the New Testament it's usually translated as prideful. But a scoffer is the Hebrew word let's. And a let's is a mocker. It's somebody who has this air of superiority where they look at the world and they think of themselves as above it all and they make fun of it. And it is the worst of the fools described in the book of Proverbs. God says the let's is unteachable and therefore outside of the ability to ever learn wisdom. The Hebrew, modern Hebrew word letzan comes from this word and it means clown or comedian. Isn't that interesting? Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the needy. This verse has been quoted in the New Testament, both in James chapter 4, verse 6, and in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. And in 1 Peter particularly, the example of Hannah and others like her seems to have been in view for Peter. He wrote this, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, to the letzan, to the mocker, to the comedian, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. That's what we saw in Hannah, right? Having cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares about you. Both Hannah and Peter have recognized that God is inclined to show mercy to those who live humbly. 
And not only with respect to him, but with respect to their neighbors as well. In fact, the scriptures even warn, did you know this is in the Bible? They even warn against rejoicing when an enemy gets his or her just desserts. You know, when somebody who's just been a jerk gets their comeuppance. Like if you see it in a movie, everybody cheers, right? Remember, did they do that anymore? When I was a kid, the movie theaters were so packed that people would cheer. I went to see Return of the Jedi and waited three hours to go in to see that movie in 1983 in a line at a movie theater that had two screens. And when we got in there, it was so packed. And every time an evil person got there, everybody went, woo! You know, you don't have that experience anymore, do you? Yeah, those, those were good days. But anyway, Proverbs says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. You want God to take the side of your enemy? Rejoice when they fail. That's what the Proverbs is saying. Hannah, of course, had learned this from her experience. Her adversaries were her husband's second wife, Penina, and those in her culture who saw her infertility as judgment on her from God. And Hannah was, we talked about this, she was forlorn and depressed in the wake of the torment she was receiving from these people, but she did not respond to their torment in kind. Instead, she humbled herself before the Lord, and she experienced the Lord's compassionate reversal. The Lord made her fertile. As a consequence, whatever pride Penina might have had in her own ability to produce children was made moot. And the condemning voices of Hannah's community were silenced as well. When far from being cursed by God, Hannah was now blessed. So the question I want to ask, and this tells us about who God is, and that's really been the theme of my whole time with you here at Marcellus United Methodist Church. Who is God? And the question is not whether God does this, because it's very clear that he does. Why does he do this? Why does he prefer the humble and oppose the proud? Why? Well, it seems to me that God himself, in his core character, is humble maybe even meek. Now that may be surprising to some of us, since every time we see a picture of God's throne room, he's surrounded with angels singing his praises. Maybe that's surprising because God so frequently speaks of his power and calls his people to obedience, and maybe those seem like arrogant, power-hungry things to some people. And God does do those things. But we might notice that those things happen as extreme calls to the people of God, as measures of last resort. They're all true. God is the most powerful being in the room. He is the source of life. He is worthy of praise. He is capable of doing whatever he wishes. So they're all true attestations that he usually keeps to himself unless his people will not turn from their wickedness, and then he confesses the truth to them. In essence, it seems that God, though, prefers to serve. He prefers to work behind the scenes. He prefers to care for the world and for us without fanfare and without recognition. The reason we see so few miracles is miracles are showing off. And God rarely shows off. Now, why do I believe this? Well, the simple answer is Jesus. I believe this because of Jesus. But I'll need to help you to see what I see when I read his teachings. 
The book of Hebrews has described Jesus in the following way. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And here's the critical verse. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That way of describing God in the Greek is the description of like a stamp that you would stamp the image of the emperor on a coin, like George Washington's image is on a quarter. It's like that, that Jesus is the stamp of God impressed on human flesh. The scriptures tell us that in the beginning, when God first created humanity, he intended to create a being made in his own image. You and I often go about talking as though that's us. And in a way, it could be. But the book of Hebrews tells us that only one person has ever fully realized that intention of God. God has only one son, his only begotten son. And only Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of God's intention from the beginning. Jesus himself is a being made in the image of God. To use the language of the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Any who would be made in the image of God, therefore, must be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the teachings of Scripture. Fair enough. Well, then what does Jesus reveal to us about the nature of God? Above all else, it seems to me that Jesus has revealed to us the essential humility and meekness of God. Several passages are illustrative of this revelation of Jesus. And we'll go through these very quickly. For instance, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus described himself in the following way. He said, "'Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Furthermore, in the wake of James and John's request to lead the disciples after Jesus' death, do you remember they said, who will sit at your right and your left hand? Who's going to be in charge of this deal when you're gone? Who's going to be Pope? Who's going to be the leader of the church? Who's going to take this bull by the horns and take it where it needs to go? Can it be us, Jesus? Can it be us? That's what James and John said. And that made the other disciples angry. It created sort of a bickering over who was going to be the heir of Jesus, like Elisha asking for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Jesus responded to that situation with these words. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, on the night of Jesus' arrest, after taking the posture of a servant and washing his disciples' feet, something that would have been beneath anyone but a slave in Jesus' day, Jesus said the following in John 13, 12 through 17, Do you know, or maybe a better translation, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. So you call me the one who knows more than you and the one who has superior authority to you. 
and that's what he means by teacher and Lord. And you're correct, for so I am. Anybody who says Jesus never claimed to be uh, God, well, he claimed to be Lord anyway. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you also would do just as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. My first boss, I worked at a hardware store, my very first boss um, every week cleaned the bathroom. And if you've worked at a hardware store, this was the men's bathroom that he cleaned. I don't know what the ladies' bathroom was nice, but the men's bathroom was not nice. You held your breath when you went in there. And he cleaned it every week. And I asked him why. He's the head of the store. And he said, I figure if I clean the bathroom, nothing I ask you to do will be too good for you. You'll be too good for it. I thought, well, that's kind of what Jesus did, right? All of these examples have been brought together beautifully by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. And I know this is more scripture than you're used to hearing, but I hope you can see God in it. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul's brought all of this together. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, and by, by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Who Jesus is, is who God is. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature in human flesh. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus reveals that God takes the form of a servant. That God is gentle and humble in heart. That God lives as though others are more important than himself. Now that might not be apparent to us. Since the scriptures describe God as having destroyed the earth in a flood. As raining down fire and burning sulfur on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as delivering his own people into the hands of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires as recompense for their sins. That might not seem humble. But as Hannah realized millennia ago. God has not done any of those things out of arrogance or superiority or out of a desire to lord himself over us as the Gentiles lord their leadership over their followers. God has done all these things for the same reason that a mother might grab her child's arm forcefully, even wrenching it out of its socket to save her child from oncoming traffic. God has done these things for the same reason that a father might turn his drug-addicted son over to the police in order to prevent a further spiraling into self-destruction. And God has done these things much, must as a parent must at some point 
allow their children to face the consequences of their choices, if they're going to allow their children to be adults in any meaningful sense. In Jesus, God upturned the moneylenders' tables in the temple in order to call them to repentance before the weight of their corruption brought the whole temple down on their heads. Before God created, there was nothing. In the wake of God's creation, life will forever be dependent on the architecture of God. Life depends on the structures by which God brought life into being and by which he sustains it. Life doesn't operate under its own laws. It is sustained by the nature of God. He knows how the world works, and he knows what keeps it working. He is the creator. To live against his word is to war against life itself. And those who pursue death in this way will most certainly die. God's interventions, even when they have been violent interventions, have always been to forestall our inevitable run to destruction. In essence, however, God is more merciful than he is vengeful, and he places grace before justice. And so when God finally brings judgment, it's really because all other attempts to redirect us have failed. In essence, Jesus reveals that God prefers to be unseen. Let that settle on you. God prefers to be unseen. He does not seek appreciation and he does not seek glory. As Jesus said, I seek no glory for myself. God is not given to show off. He is every bit the person that he called us to be through Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 when he said, take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. God's chesed, his steadfast loyalty and faithfulness, are so complete and so thorough that most of what he does for us each day is invisible to the mass of humanity. It's as though he's not even there. Have you ever been in a hotel where you just come back to your room at night and the bed's made and the mints are on the pillows and the trash is emptied and the laundry's been done and it feels like, you know, the elves descended and made the shoes, right? Where in the, how did this all happen? God is a servant of that sort. He's such a servant and so humble in the ways that he watches over us that most of humanity has mistaken God's activity mistaking God's watch care, mistaking God's providence for laws of nature. If you never saw the servant who made the bed, you'd come to think that beds just self-organize. They must just self-organize. These things must just happen. We've never seen anybody do it, but there it is. Every day, God maintains the world. Every day, he shares his life with every human being, even those doing evil. He empowers our cells to operate and our systems to function by the breath that he breathes into us. Every day he enables our bodies to heal wounds, to empower our immune systems to combat disease. He energizes our nervous systems to govern our bodies' so-called autonomic functions. He's so chesed that they seem autonomic. The scriptures speak of God leading birds on their migratory routes. Have you read this? It speaks of him flying at the head of geese. This is in the book of Job. 
It speaks of God as waiting in expectation for a female deer to give birth, that he waits, waiting for the baby to be born so he can care for it. That's also in the book of Job. This is who God is. But of course, the world is not all roses. People die of cancer. Insects ravage human bodies. Nature's full of violence and destruction. Life often comes at a great cost as some are sacrificed so that others can live. And God has made this too. And he sustains it as well. Now, some of that is no doubt due to the fallenness of creation under the weight of human rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8 verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So some of that is because of sin. But I'm sure that some hardship and suffering would have remained, even if Adam and Eve had not rebelled against God in the garden. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 verse 3, And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. This world is a womb in which we are becoming children made in the image of God, to be born into the real world of the new heavens and the new earth, and maturation takes pressure. And I'm sure there would have always been some suffering. Some suffering is undoubtedly for our good. If God created the world to include suffering, the scriptures teach it would not be that he did that for his good, but for creation's good. For as we heard from Paul earlier, God is one who does nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility considers others as more important than himself. For these reasons, God opposes the proud, and he lifts up the humble. Why? Because the humble are like him, and the proud are like Satan. God created and sustains all this universe out of humility, not out of pride. He considers us as more important than himself. All we need to do is look at Jesus to see that that's true. The humility of God is the foundation of all life, and therefore it is the way by which all life must proceed. Pride in its various forms is inconsistent with God and with life. We should have learned that in the Garden of Eden. Pride is a road to destruction. Imagine just for a second that God were prideful, that he was all about himself, that he lived his life meant much the way we do. We get ours first and then we leave whatever's left to the others. Imagine if he lived in that way. Would there even be a universe? Why create with such a burden to be placed on you? All these laws to maintain, all these lives to uphold, all this sacrifice to be done. Why would you do it if you were selfish? You wouldn't. A selfish God, we wouldn't be here. It would be impossible if God put himself first, he would not have made the commitment to watch over all of us, nor would he have died that we might live forever. Have you ever considered that promise from God's perspective? What a sacrifice for God. He has promised to maintain your life forever. That is a big commitment. You and I think marriage is a commitment. Think of that. 
Love truly is not self-seeking. If it were, why would he waste his time on you? And in some fashion, Hannah learned this about God. And so, though she lived in a time that Judges describes as days in which there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, days in which nobody recognized God, nobody submitted to him, everybody did what they thought best. And even though she lived in that culture, she ended her prayer with a prophetic pronouncement that those who join God in his humility will in the end be vindicated. Hannah had learned that those who rebel against God will be destroyed. But not because God is distempered, because he has like fits of rage or something like that. We already know love does not do that. The wicked are destroyed by their own prideful rejection of the way of God. By their rejection of life. Rebels think that we're rejecting legalism or the tyranny of an all-powerful thing that thinks he can tell me what to do. We think we're rebelling, we're speaking truth to power, and no greater power is there than God. In that way, we are very much, many of us, like Satan, saying, try to tell me what to do, and I'll show you what I think of your opinion. That's sort of the, it's, is that the American way? I don't know. We did it to the king of England. Rebels think they're rejecting tyranny, but they are in actuality rejecting God's nature and thereby rejecting the very foundation of the life of the universe. Those who seek death will indeed find it. That is the way of all flesh. But those who seek life, they must heed Hannah's lesson, which the Apostle John has explained in this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, By this we know that we have come to know him. Not to believe in him, to know him. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word, in him the love of God, the submissive, humble, self-sacrificing, not self-interested love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him ought himself also walk just as he walked. Judgment is coming now, and we see this, upon those who by their arrogance and pride are refusing the way of Jesus. God is judging us not because God is easily angered, but because the traffic is coming. And we are refusing not to run into it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many find it. To say it another way, unless we're willing to follow the way that Jesus has made for us, death is inevitable. It's where God found us was in nothingness and death. And it's where we run to without him. We must lay down our pride and return again to the way of Jesus and the teachings of God. He knows the way to life, and it's a way of service, humility, and submission. He is a meek and gentle God. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. But to follow him, we must give up all selfish ambition and all vain conceit. The time is short, people of God, but we can still turn and follow Jesus.
become the servants that he has always been to us. Amen.